Well, now it's time for The Pick. Yes, each month uh, we at Saturday Extra like to give you a guide of what to read and listen to and watch, particularly if we're, as we're heading into colder winter times. Joining us today to share their recommendations are Jonathan Perlman, who's the editor of Australian Foreign Affairs and world editor of the Saturday paper. Welcome back, Jonathan. Hi, Geraldine. And joining him is Justin Burke, who was recently named the Lowy Institute's 2022 Thorley Scholar, and he's bound for Washington, D.C. He's also Program Coordinator for Foreign and Security Policy at the Conrad Adenauer Foundation uh, in Canberra. He's a doctoral candidate at Macquarie University and a former journalist and TV and film critic for The Australian. Goodness. Good morning and welcome, Justin. Good morning, Geraldine. Uh, Now, look, just before we get to the fun, I must ask you, Jonathan, about a report that is in the nine papers about a signing of of a deal. Uh, It's still underway between the Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi and um, East Timor via, uh, and I think he's meeting today, Shanana Guzmao and Jose Ramos Horta. Um, Quite a complex deal. More to come. There's a lot we obviously need to know. Does that surprise you? I mean, I think East Timor, Timor-Leste's relationship with China is quite different to the relationship that other countries in the Pacific have with China. Um, and in some sense, it's not a surprise. Um, China was a strong backer of Timorese independence all the way through the sort of 70s and, and 80s during the um, during the years when Ramos Horta and Janana Guzmao were, were leading the, uh, the the independence movement. And China was very quick to back Timorese independence um, and and has you know strongly backed Timor commercially. It, it built the presidential palace in Dili. Mm. Um, so, of course, Australia has very close ties, much to celebrate in its relationship with Dili and some things maybe to, to, to regret. Um, uh, but China, China has a history of very close relations with Dili and it's not a surprise that it's now you know, as it's moving around the Pacific, and this is this is Wang Yi's last mm. stop on his ten ten day tour. It's not a surprise to see him, you know, trying to, to trying to ink some more deals. Yes, very interesting because they're particularly talking about the Timor Gap facility too, which of course mm. does very much feature in our history. Okay, I just wanted to get that on the record before we go, but let's get to some of the fun now. And there's some fabulous suggestions you both make. You've just finished reading Jonathan The Passenger by Ulrich. Boschwitz, B-O-S-C-H-W-I-T-Z, I presume. This book was first published in 1938, but has only recently been uh, rediscovered. What's that about? Yeah, and this, the story behind this book is almost as incredible as the book. Um, Ulrich Boschwitz was um, a, a Protestant, but his father was Jewish, and he and his mother, his father died in the First World War. He and his mother escaped Germany in the 1930s, and he actually ended up one of being one of the De Niro boys brought to Australia, um, oh. and and you know treated terribly on the way over here by the British when when they brought over a whole lot of German, mainly Jewish refugees, um, and, and put them in detention camps in the middle of New South Wales. He went back to England. He was a brilliant young writer. He tried to get back to England and was killed 
by a German U-boat. He had a manuscript of his of his sort of next novel tied tied to his body, um, oh. and that was lost. Oh. But recently, a German publisher discovered the original manuscript to a book that he published when he was alive. It's called the now it's been called the Passenger, and has put together really the version that he had always wanted to produce, and it is really an incredible book um it's it's amazingly prophetic it's it's written um in the late 1930s but before the concentration camps had been set up and it's um it's about this jewish man who has sort of left it too late to leave germany and is now desperately trying to escape and it's about his journey around germany as he as he tries to get out but it's impossible to read the book without knowing its provenance and without knowing that it was written at the time that it's set, he wrote it, he wrote the book in just over a month, My and it's got this incredible pace. It's like a thriller. It's sort of been compared to Hitchcock and, and The Fugitive, um, and it's it's really an amazing sort of contemporary fictional document um, from 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 that terrible time. Wow. Oh, well, I can feel people noting that all, all around Australia. Um, I, look, I'll get to Justin now. Uh, you're reading Bates Gill's new book, Daring to Struggle, China's Global Ambitions under Xi Jinping. And now, t- he's quite the China watcher. He's been a guest on this program, but quite a while ago now. Um, what themes is he exploring, Justin? Yes, look, it's excellent. I, I must say I am full of admiration for Bates. When Bates speaks or Bates writes... Uh, I'm listening because invariably it's it's timely and, and relevant information. Uh, he's chosen this moment to to write this book because uh, it is obviously 10 years of President Xi Jinping's uh, reign in China and we're looking at the National Party Congress this year likely to install him for another third term, uh, something not seen since Mao. So it's a very interesting time to take stock of what's happened and what we can expect. So Bates has kind of scaffolded his discussion around some of the elements that you might expect, like leadership, sovereignty, power, wealth, um, but really at the heart of it, and I think the, the thing that was unique for me, is this Chinese desire for legitimacy. So it's this driving uh, mission of the of the CCP to maintain domestic legitimacy and international legitimacy as well. So he actually begins the book with a quote from a a scholarly friend in Shanghai, and he asks his friend, you know, what is it that China wants in a sentence? And his friend responds, to be respected in the world and to receive our due, dot, dot, dot. You will have to get used to it. Mm. <laughs> so that's what makes the whole behaviour towards Russia at the moment so interesting. And I mean, a, a lot of people are, are trying to wrestle with that. Absolutely. Look, it couldn't be more relevant with what's happening with this uh, best friends forever uh, relationship mm. with Russia, supposedly, uh, and and the events in the, in the Pacific Islands this week. It's it's all very relevant. Um, but I think that you know, in terms of the, the brittleness of the foreign policy uh, that we see, the the thin skinned attitude to any kind of criticism, it's it's hard for us to understand. But in a sense, uh, for for the Chinese. Uh, Communist Party for the leadership, it connects right back to their domestic legitimacy. So they don't brook dissent in China for how they conduct themselves. Uh, and when they hear criticism around the world, for them it's existential. Mm. And so we, 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 we are kind of um, being ladled with this expectation uh, that we will show them the respect that they, you know, demand and insist on at home. And it's, it's impossible. It's obviously uh, running into our interests, our culture, 
um, and 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 hence the uh, hence the difficulties that we've we've seen in in the last few years. And, and can I just ask quickly: Is it something that an average person can read, or do you have to be fascinated if you know what I mean and absolutely, have a doctorate? Absolutely, absolutely the former. Absolutely okay, the former. Good. So Bates, blessedly, uh, is not interested in methodological debates and IR pitched battles. Right. So <laughs> it's very much written for someone that doesn't pay attention to this stuff every day, but is nonetheless an interested reader. I, I must say, I'm hoping to interview Professor Kerry Brown, who has has a joint um, uh, academic life between Australia and England. Next week, uh, he's got a new book out too called She, uh, A Study in Power. So I think this is starting to really preoccupy people. And just before I get on to what you've been both listening to, can you tell me about this Conrad Adenauer Foundation that you work for? What does it do, please? Yes, I certainly can. They're a terrific group. Actually, they're, they're among the most uh, highly respected think tanks in the world, if you, if you look at some of the think tank rankings. Uh, so it is a German foundation. It's associated with the CDU. Uh, so the German government funds uh, each political party to have their own foundation, uh, offices across the planet and, uh, you know, involved in all sorts of different policy areas. Very interested in energy, very interested in Pacific Islands, uh, for my part, looking after their foreign and security policy stuff as well. Oh, very interesting. So we, we, we do a lot, of, a lot of explaining Australia's point of view back to Germany. <laughs> okay, now, Jonathan, you've been listening to This American Life. What's a recent episode you've enjoyed? Yes, I'm a regular listener um, and uh, I would like to recommend a recent episode called The Reluctant Explorer. It was aired a couple of weeks ago um, and it's about a tech engineer in the U.S., who suddenly gets an email saying that some little program that he designed five or six years ago and he'd completely forgotten about, he just put this program online, could be worth millions of dollars. And the program was very simple. It just had little coloured tiles and you could buy these tiles using cryptocurrency. And the reason it was believed to be worth so much was that um, it was one of the first examples of, of these sort of NFTs where you can distinctly own something using cryptocurrency. Non-fungible tokens. <laughs> yes, mm. exactly. Um, so he thought it was a spam, but it turned out it was real. Um, and he ended up making millions of dollars out of it um, uh, because people were willing to buy these little tiny coloured tiles for thousands and thousands of dollars. Um, but... What's interesting is that it raises questions around the whole world of cryptocurrency, um, which I think are, you know really interesting and becoming more important because cryptocurrency is such a major part of the economy and, and potentially, um, you know, if it if it were to collapse, it poses real threats to the global financial system these days. It, it, it doesn't um, tempt. You. It, did it not tempt you? Um, <laughs> or did it um, dissuade you? Put it that way. <laughs> It, it didn't. Um, it's. Um, I mean, it, it highlight. To me, it highlighted the lunacy of it to some extent. Um, but I have to say, the the engineer who started out as a complete skeptic um, ends up over the course of the the program um, quitting his job and entering full throttle the whole world of of cryptocurrency. Um, so there are believers, and there's you know there's um, there's a, there's a big divide at mm. the moment. But I think it's really it's a fascinating episode, but I think it's a really fascinating issue and I think, you know, people are paying more and more attention to it now. 
Okay, and now, Justin, you're a submarine expert as well as everything else, and you're currently looking into the differences between the American and Australian submarine experience. Why is that and how has that helped you uh, choose things, something for the pick? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think it's it's more timely than ever if we are to acquire nuclear-powered submarines because we have been uh, – we had this long experience of conventionally powered, and so I'm, I'm interested in this comparison to the American experience – where they've got nuclear-powered submarines and how has that worked and what can we learn because we, we may indeed be moving more to that model. So uh, in discussions with my American colleagues, they get endless recommendations for things that will help uh, put little puzzle pieces down on the table for me. And one of them is this book, Scorpion Down, by a very dogged uh, you know, military reporter called Ed Offley. So it is about this loss of the USS Scorpion in 1968, and it was lost on the way from the Mediterranean back to Virginia. And the official Navy explanation uh, after you know several inquiries, some of which was public, some of which was not, was that it was an inexplicable accident. Ed Offley has uh, really, you know, so it really appeals to me because as a as a former journalist, I know how hard it is to get submariners to talk. What they do is, you know, naturally very secretive. Uh, the technology about how they do it is unbelievably secretive and important. And submariners, by nature, are very taciturn. Uh, they don't, they're not big talkers. They're not uh, they're not big outspoken people. And I've had many doors slammed in my face, as you can well imagine. Uh, Ed Offley, likewise, but he maintained this sort of dogged quest. For years. For years and years, yeah, absolutely. Mm. And he's come up with a theory, uh, you know, spoiler alert, he believes that it was attacked by Soviets uh, and sunk by Soviets and covered up to, you know, prevent World War III from uh, from Goodness breaking me. out. Goodness There are certainly other views out there uh, from, from other submariners about what, what possibly could have happened, but... Yeah, we, I guess we don't know. And you're listening to the audio book. Indeed, yes, absolutely. Yep, that's a very good way to do it. It's a very very charming and very pacey kind of audio book. Uh, again, not scholarly, but very narrative-driven. Mm. Can I just throw in, I suggest um, The Rest is History, which is a wonderful podcast series with Tom Holland and Dominic Sandbrook. They've just done three programs on Australian Prime Ministers. My goodness, they're enjoyable. It's really fun and very interesting <laughs> perspective, which I recommend. Now, Excellent. Justin, keeping on the theme of America, you've also been listening to the American pop star Taylor Swift. In particular, have I? What? Yes. <laughs> in particular, her, we don't normally have Taylor Swift on the pick. In particular, her album Red, which came out last year. Tell us some of the backstory of this album. Is- Look, I, <laughs> I must say, uh, I sat for almost a decade next to the now late uh, but great Ian Shedd and the music editor at The Australian. Ah, yes. And he would roll his eyes at my tastes in music <laughs> and I can imagine he continues to do so somewhere. Um, so I, I stipulate to that fact. Uh, and, yes, I have an 11-year-old daughter who's playing guitar and obsessed with Taylor Swift. Yes, maybe we bought the same cat as Taylor Swift. Maybe I think she's this generation's Paul McCartney. Oh, let, let's, just ha- let, let's just have a listen, please, a little, <laughs> little burst.
Okay, I, I think you're slightly overreaching, but... Uh, <laughs> no, I, I, this is the hill I, I will die on. This is the hill you'll die on? All right, well, I'll let you die on that hill then. Thank and look, <laughs> I just... No, look, I, I must say, when, when I listen to Taylor Swift, I, I, I must say it's her industry that impresses me as much as anything else. And during the lockdown uh, period 2020, 2021, uh, I was teaching hundreds of undergraduate students on, on Zoom. It's a really difficult time and motivation was a big issue for people. And Taylor Swift during this period switched genres, recorded two albums, re-recorded two others uh, and released them and uh, as well as all sorts of other videos. And oh, well, that's impressive. I didn't know all that. It was an extraordinarily uh, courageous, creative and productive time for her and I insisted to my students, half of them laughed at me, which is fine, uh, you know, that Taylor Swift is an unbelievable uh, kind of inspiration for how creativity and hard work can happen despite the circumstances. So many artists unable to tour kind of sat and looked at the wall for a year or two. Mm. Uh, Taylor Swift owned it and I think it's, I think it's inspiring. Very good. No, I, that's, I like that. <laughs> like that. Now, Jonathan, very quickly, you're looking forward to the new series of Borgen, which I was totally addicted to. I didn't realise there was a new series coming. Yes. Um, I mean, the first three series aired about 10 years ago, mm. this Danish uh, political drama, um, uh, but it's a, a thrilling drama. Their version and, of Julia uh, Gillard, sort of. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, and I think it, <laughs> there was... Excuse me. There was also a, um, it was sort of loosely based or even um, predated Denmark's first female prime minister. Mm. Um, but uh, it was an incredible show um, about this unlikely prime minister um, from this tiny party. Um, this woman who, who who ends up making it to the top, but then ends up um, having to get her hands very okay. dirty. Um, so yes, the the, the they've. Made now a fourth series ten years later, um, and that has just been released. I just thought it was the whoever wrote the script really knew about politics. I thought it was the best depiction of politics. Uh, So we'll look forward to that. Look, we have to go. I'm afraid, Uh, uh, Jonathan and Justin. Thank you very, very much for your suggestions this uh, this time round. It's easier than ever to hear your favourite local and national ABC radio stations live and on demand on the ABC Listen app.